Hello and welcome to a packed edition of The Culture Bunker, your weekend pop culture roundup. I'm Sean Patton. And I'm Andrew Harrison. This week, legend of snooker Steve Davis, yes, Steve Davis, tells us how he went from six world snooker titles to DJing and creating out there avant-garde prog rock and electronica. It's very interesting. At the movies, we examine Denis Villeneuve's long-awaited adaptation of Sand and Spice sci-fi epic Dune and Wes Anderson's wry fantasy of sophisticated magazine folk, hmm? The French Dispatch, plus Andrew talks to star Léa Seydoux. In music, guest John Harris has delved into unheard Beatles recordings to assemble the story of Let It Be for a new book. Is this, at last, the final word on Beatledom? And we've got the new album from newly minted superstar of self-excavating pop, Rebecca Lucy Taylor from Rotherham, a.k.a. Self-Esteem. All this in today's Culture Bunker. Hello and welcome to the Culture Bunker. And hello to our very special guest. It's a 147 break for us, maybe 200 break for us, maybe 3,000 yes. break for us, <laughs> as we warmly welcome a six times world snooker champion, the first player to make an officially recognised maximum break in a professional competition. He's a radio broadcaster, club DJ, and musician. And he co founded the electronic music band The U- Utopia Strong. It could only be the inimitable. <laughs> It could only be the inimitable Steve Davis. Hello and welcome, Steve. Hello, thank you very much indeed. It's uh, yes, this is a weird one, isn't it? What happened to my life? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, we will be delving though into your life. You're known for your DJ sets now. She said ridiculously, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> alongside your <laughs> your mate Cavus, where you play your kraut rock bangers, etc. But what's the tune? Is my question. You play when you need to clear the floor at one p.m. Clear the floor. Uh, well, yeah, everyone out. What do you play? Well, the last time we DJed at a festival uh, was recently at Camp Bestival. And I don't think it was the best booking in the world if, from the, their point of view because um, we were the last 10 open and, and we, we were following, even though we weren't on the main stage, we were following Fat Boy Slim doing his his routine. And then everybody piled into our tent. And it turns out that people that wear glitter and go to Camp Bestival are not really into French progressive jazz rock at 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> um, so every, every record we played cleared the place. And actually, we did security God. such a favour. <laughs> Everyone. By, by two in the morning, the place was totally empty. It was one of our best DJ sets ever. And previously, all the records we played, that we played the same records maybe at a festival called Supernormal, we had a stage invasion. So we had the polar opposites... Mm-hmm. So you know how to clear them. I've got to fangirl for a moment about Robert Wyatt because I hear you're also an admirer. You said, if you don't like sea song, you don't like music, which is from his album Rock Bottom. Why should everyone have this in their collection? <laughs> you're right. Why should everybody have it? There's no reason why. Yeah, I, I, they I, must. <laughs> well, what I would say is that anybody who has it in their collection absolutely loves it with a passion. And anybody who's not heard mm. it will be astonished by it. It doesn't matter what age group. So I always feel like with Rock Bottom that you've just got to let somebody know it, it exists and then they will eventually, uh, it will See be one of their favourite albums. But you know, th- what, why? I don't know. It's very unusual for its time, even though it, it comes under that banner of prog rock, but I don't feel it's prog, mm-hmm. prog rock at all. It's, it's just a work of art. I agree. It's something of itself, isn't it? We'll be talking to Steve more a little later. But most important question I want to ask you as someone who has played Glastonbury, never mind about the 147 break, we're not interested in that. <laughs> <laughs> What's on your rider, Steve? When you play, what do you demand? Uh, uh, strong IPA. 
you know, six percent mm-hmm. IPAs right. by, from Very craft nice. breweries. Um, <laughs> no lager, yeah. no no crap lager. It's got to be craft ale, locally okay. produced, maybe, Ooh. and and strong stuff. Ooh. So it's quality over quantity. You are singing the song of my people. <laughs> also joining us today. John Harris is a politics and culture writer and broadcaster who started his writing career at Sounds Magazine, RIP, moving on to Enemy and then Select, the greatest magazine in history, where he became the editor. It's RIP, RIP, RIP. So we're going to talk about this Beatles book later, those final days of the Beatles and, and Let It Be. But there's a lot of Beatles scholarship out there, isn't there? How, how did this particular book happen and how did you want to make it different from the from the corpus of Beatlesiana? You're right, there, are, there is a huge, huge amount of, of Beatles literature I think I own 75 or thereabouts Beatles books, and it's constantly growing, the great mountain. This is different. Um, The sort of start of the whole thing was just the the fact that the 50th anniversary of Let It Be, the film, and the album, the Beatles' last album, was approaching. Not only were they filmed during this period for about three or four weeks, there were two Nagra tape recorders, which they have on film sets, or certainly did then, running the whole time, recording all of their conversations. Over the years, some of that material had gone missing. They had to get Apple, the Beatles company, had to get Interpol involved and go and bust these Dutch bootleggers in Amsterdam who had some of these... Who had tapes of Ringo saying, two sugars, please. Exactly, yeah, and George Orrin omelettes <laughs> and other such uh, <laughs> crucial material. So um, they, uh, it took a while to sort of amass all this material and some of the footage had gone missing as well that was subsequently given to Peter Jackson. But when Let It Be first came out in Britain, there was a little book came with it with transcriptions of some of these conversations. And Apple, the Beatles company, sort of got in touch with me because I'd written Beatles sleeve notes in the recent past and said, could we have a conversation about, about what to do in sort of book terms with this great mountain of material? And quite quickly, we arrived at the idea of writing a book that would read like a sort of three-act real-life play with the arc of a story. And I I went through 60 hours <laughs> or thereabouts, of the Beatles creating and talking and, you know, considering uh, whether they were going to split up eventually and what that might entail, but also talking about what they saw on BBC Two last night and what they wanted for breakfast and George getting busted by speed cameras in Hampton Court and all sorts of things, you know, and that was my life for about two or three months. You know, as somebody who knows this stuff inside out, what did you discover that surprised you? You know, there's sort of insights, different angles on it, because it's generally thought of as being a relatively rancorous experience for the for the Beatles. This, yeah. So it wasn't rancorous in the sense that they don't shout at each other and they have the utmost respect for each other, even when things get difficult. I mean, that's one thing that strikes you is what sort of gracious, emotionally sensitive people they were or are. Paul McCartney, in particular, you know, that has this reputation for being in this period perhaps being bossy and it's not like that at all he's acutely sensitive to the delicacy of trying to orientate these four increasingly different people in the same direction and all of that so i was struck really by how sort of emotionally literate and open they were because most people in on this recording have met musicians right and they don't tend to be the most sort of emotionally literate, sensitive people. It can be qu- They're not mature, are they? No, they can be quite emotionally constipated and not very good at mm. sort of, um, you know, thrashing things out. And the Beatles are really, really good at that. But And very candid about the position they're in, you know. Paul says at one point, you know what they're going to say in 50 years? The Beatles split up because Yoko sat on an amp. And that's pretty much what happened. <laughs> and here we are doing it 50 years later. <laughs> 
the Beatles could see through time. In the putting together, because this obviously this is a grand moment in Beatles Iana, the the release this Peter Jackson it's film. Did you uh, did you rub shoulders with Macker and Ringo? Did they have requirements and suggestions and notes? Don't put that in. No. What happened was um, I was given this great mountain of spiral bound transcripts. So I mean, all the real legwork had been done by somebody else. I mean, these a team of people did these amazingly precise transcripts. I was then given the recordings, and then eventually I was sent um, an iPad that had all the rushes on it. I had 50 hours of the Beatles, you know, everything that was captured on the cameras at the time. Um, and then the manuscript was largely completed, and then it's in the nature of it that the four sort of key shareholders, if you like, in Apple, that is to say Paul, Ringo, Yoko, and Olivia, George's widow, then get it and approve it and all that. As far as 99.9% of the material is concerned, they're relaxed about it and they see it as history. And so even the, the parts where it's quite near the knuckle and you and you know you hear them talking about breaking up or John just having met Alan Klein, the manager who probably split the Beatles up and all that, they were all right with all of it. So all so the main thing is I had an email, I was relayed a message from Paul McCartney eventually saying how much he liked it. And that was that. Oh, that's, that's nice, isn't it? Oh, we're going to talk in the podcast a little bit later to John about the book and the re-release of Let It Be, the grand finale of Beatles Reissues, or is it? <laughs> but first, a tiny reminder. You can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support us on Patreon. That's The Culture Bunker at the weekend and our shows on politics, science, pop culture and all and sundry throughout the week. You'll also get trendy and with it merchandise. You will. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. As Sean said, we've got the legend that is Steve Davis as our guest today, back in the spotlight after the BBC's incredible documentary Gods of Snooker earlier this year. He is a unique figure. I can't think of a single sportsman who's exchanged a planet-smashing career in their chosen game for a life in music, much less the challenging and exhilarating world of electronica prog and cosmisha rock. <laughs> Although I did once see Pat Cash play guitar with cheap tricks, so I don't know if that counts or not. As well as DJing tirelessly and playing with the Utopia Strong, Steve also presents the Steve Davis Interesting Alternative Show on Phoenix FM. We're going to talk about exchanging the green bays for the dream rave mm. after this track from the Utopia Strong. This is Conta Chorus. Rock Loopy, Nuts is he, Faust and Can and Tangerine Dream. Steve, <laughs> my, my God. He'll show you what he can do with a box of records by Popol Vuh. Steve. My God, that was that brilliant. Track is... That was brilliant. You must, have been, you must have been up all night doing that. That was wonderful. It came to me in a dream. Steve, that track is so up my street. It's like Kraftwerk, but even more out there. Take us back to the beginning of your love of this stuff. Where did it come from? Were you getting down to Faust when the Matroom boys were all listening to Simply the Best? Uh, no, going you. Well, I, I'm not too sure of the musical taste of, uh, of my fellow uh, snooker players, but I was lucky enough that there was one fellow uh, like-minded person in my school, and together we sort of carved out our own musical route uh, against the sort of the sea of other pop that uh, most other sixth formers were listening to and I felt I found myself gravitating towards the weird rather than the prog so even though prog mm. was around in, in a massive amount in the 70s 
I was starting to like Henry Cow more, Magma more than Yes and Genesis. And I, and I was... I wasn't aware of everything that was weird out there, but I knew there was something different about Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa, and it was appealing to me much more. So that's where it started. And obviously some of the great crowd, uh, they were called crowd rock bands back then, and, and obviously Cosmish is the, the more politically correct word we now use. But you know, the, the likes of Faust were doing much more exciting things than than, you know, than even Kraftwerk, I, f- I feel. So I was always looking for something that was a bit different, a bit strange. Did you ever try and like you know sell your snookering colleagues on it? You know, drag Barry Hearn out to see Amondel too, and <laughs> like that. Come on, guys, get into it. Well, well, I um, I, I did actually um, for my sins, and it was actually great fun. In 1988, when Magma was still going, and, and there was a new album out by Christian Vander, and I thought, wow, I didn't even know that was still happening. I thought, wouldn't it be great if they came to London? So I booked them to come to London, um, and uh, my manager Barry Hearn was actually going, I'm going to come along. And I said, "Don't you won't you won't like it." But because he's used to because he's used to boxing, I obviously had to get him ringside front seats. Uh, so he got the music slightly, you know, very early, you know, slightly earlier than everybody else in the room. So he was the first person to be horrified by what came out of Christian Vander's mouth in 1988. He, he came along with his wife and Frank Warren, the other boxing promoter, the four of them. And I think they lasted about 10 minutes before they just walked out in shock. That's my only experience of any of subjecting anybody other than Terry Griffiths to another Magma album on a flight, which he quite enjoyed. Oh, <laughs> nice. There's a lot of value, isn't there, in music that other people have a violent reaction to. That it sort of <laughs> almost makes you like it more. You know, it's like, this is my thing. Yeah, well, I've, I've become so used to, to uh, people just going, what on earth is this? Uh, I can't, how can you listen to this? How can you like this? I've given up. I do the radio, I do the radio show that attracts like-minded people. But I, I wonder in the Brentwood and Billericay community, how many people are listening to casual radio going, what am I listening to here? This is, I'm, I'm straight turning this off. But, and that, I expect that reaction now. So it's, it's always a pleasant surprise when somebody actually likes a track from a new artist that, that's out there. Well, this is it, because the kind of clock has come around full circle, hasn't it? And the kind of stuff that you're into is now also the cutting edge of electronica. And, you know, I was looking at the kind of playlists on your on your radio show. This is stuff that makes Autica look like Little Mix, you know. <laughs> it's out there and beyond and enormously trendy. In fact, I was coming out of the train station at Dalston a few at the end of a couple of years ago oh, yeah. and saw you staggering up the stairs of the record box to play at Cafe Oto. This is the bleeding cutting edge of cool, <laughs> Steve. I, I, it's, it's, it was ne- there was never a plan. This has all gone weird. My, 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 I mean, so my, the, 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 the last two years of lockdown haven't been weird for me because the, my whole life seems to have been surreal. I, I never planned to be a snooker player. I just fell in love with it. And I certainly never planned to be in a band or d- DJing, but things just happened like catalysts came along at the right point. And when we were DJing in um, a brewery in Bethnal Green uh, after sort of being invited to do it in a tap room, two lads from Block Weekend were there and said, we'd like you to DJ at Block Weekend at Minehead, which is an electronic music festival. We said, we don't play techno, but they said, they said no, it's OK, play what you're playing. This will be a good foil for it all. And then BBC iPlayer did a feature on it. And the next minute, the phone started ringing, and our second ever gig was at Glastonbury in the park area at the Stonebridge <laughs> wow. Bar. 
second ever gig. I mean, like, obviously, all of the DJs that have spent years honing their talents to try and get to Glastonbury, and we just fast-tracked in there. We felt very, very guilty. <laughs> one, but once we had a couple of bottles of gin to sort of calm her, our nerves, we forgot the guilt and just went for it. Yeah, but, as you know, has Frat Boy Slim ever done a perfect break of 147 at the Sheffield Octagon? <laughs> I don't think he has. <laughs> yeah, no, it's right. So we, we did have a full uh, room. Uh, it was packed out in the you know, when we did our DJing slot there, and, um, and we were worried it wasn't going to be but I suppose the novelty aspect was high. So we, we've got novelty on our side. And the same thing applied with the Utopia Strong when I got involved in playing a modular synthesizer and really enjoyed the you know, the sort of the hobby of that. And then we, all of a sudden we were, we were a band and we had an album out. Yeah, we got a bit of a pass uh, on, on reviews and that to start with. But now that's over. Now we're sort of, you know, we're standing on our own two feet because a new album coming out soon. So that will be viewed, viewed very much through, this is an artist and we're going to review it without any any thought of any other novelty. John, how are you on the Krautrock scale from Iron to Zane? Uh, I like it, but that's because of your brother, Andrew. Oh, right, my brother Ian. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so when I was at Select Magazine, in the, in the, at the heights or uh, looked at in an alternate way in the depths of Britpop, it got pretty awful musically in retrospect, you know. Naming no names. Your brother Ian was into what they called Krautrock. And this is all. This is pre-streaming and all that. And the only the only place Steve will probably be familiar with this. The only place you could sort of reliably get access to a lot of it was this shop in Leicester, which was built into the railway station called Ultima Thule, which Julian Cope used to go on about. And so one day we sort of sagged off work, and three of us, me, your brother Ian, and I think Andrew Perry came as well. We got the train to Leicester. And went to this shop, which seemed to be the only place in Britain you could buy all the Annoy albums. You know, they had Amandul 2 and all that. They had this huge book called The Crack in the Cosmic Egg, which was like this encyclopedia of Krautrock. And they would they found, you know, like a duo from Bremen who'd made a single-sided flexi-disc in 1971 or whatever, and it was all catalogued <laughs> and all that. So we all bought our copies of that. Each of us spent about 150 quid. And then got the train back to St Pancras, and that was my sort of introduction to it. And I, I, you know, my knowledge of it compared to aficionados is probably pretty limited, but I like it. It's just been very sort of disorientating and disconcerting, really. Do you remember a stereophonics record called Dakota? No, it was like well, even the stereophonics had gone noy. Do you know what I mean? Like everyone. (laughs) And now, because of the war on drugs, who have that motoric, however you pronounce it, motoric, that thing going on, the whole of modern music seems to sound like this now. That beat, the, the Klaus go. Dinger beat, has become sort of ubiquitous. Everybody does it. Steve, I wanted to ask, is it true that you still haven't seen Gods of Snooker, the incredible documentary, where you come out of it as a wonderful thinking British <laughs> sporting culture? <laughs> no, I haven't. I can't. I can't. Here's, the, here's the thing, right? It's, it's sort of, I'm, even though I'm part of it and I do pander to it and agree to things, I, I really I hate nostalgia. I just, with mm. a passion, I think I'm starting to realise that I don't want to be part of it, even though I have. So I agreed to do the show because I felt like if I didn't, it's, it would appear wrong. But I don't want to watch it. I don't want to watch the past. Or it's not because I don't, you know, not, I'm not sort of thinking, oh, look, there I am younger. Oh, God, I wish I was younger and now older is horrible. I just want to look to things now rather than in the past. So anything to do with the past, 
or even trying to replicate the past, like new new prog bands are trying to make themselves sound like old prog. For me, what's the point? The same as anybody trying to recreate the likes of Hello Gallo as a track is is questionable. I'd rather listen to what they are doing now as an artist. So yeah, there's a there's a band out now, and and we made this one of my sort of picks or one of the things I recommend is there's a German band called Data Shock who actually have done a cover version of mm. Hello Gallo, a sort of homage to it. But I'm more interested in, in their other music they're making now because it's much more cutting edge for me. But, yeah, I haven't watched Gods of Snooker and I don't intend to. But apparently they did play Noise Hello Gallo in that. Yeah, they did. They play, they play a fair bit of Cosmicia mm. in, in your bits. I thought it was rather sensitive yeah. to be put together. Listeners, we're going to add some of uh, Steve's choices to our uh, ongoing rolling playlist. But just before we move on, Steve, before we started the show, I sort of asked you what you're kind of into, what you think about the moment. And you said, let's talk about how shit Spotify is and how great Bandcamp is. Yeah. Are you spending all your money on Bandcamp these days? <laughs> yeah, support the artists. Go to Bandcamp. Don't listen to Spotify. Don't go on Spotify. Don't pay them the tenor. The artists never get it. It's an absolute disgrace. If you want to support new music and new artists, go to Bandcamp and buy direct for them and get rid of your Spotify account. It's poison. Sean, we're going to have to rethink the rolling Spotify playlist. I know, oh, I know. Our hands are a bit tied, aren't they? But they don't pay us any money, so we could move, couldn't no, we? Nobody, yes. Nobody pays Just us any money. Just do Bandcamp this. <laughs> I know exactly. <laughs> Oh, Mr. Sandworm, bring me a dream. <laughs> Get it if you've seen it. Dune, Denis Villeneuve's epic adaptation of Frank Herbert's classic 1960s sci-fi novel of space, Spice and Sand, is finally out in cinemas. It's out now. Starring Timothée Chalamet, Spice Girl Zendaya, Rebecca Ferguson, Jason Momoa and many, many more. Does Villeneuve's vision translate to the modern audience of today? Andrew and I have been to the pictures to find out. Let's listen to the trailer first. We are House Atreides. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! I know you. There's only awakening in my mind. You need to face your fears. Andrew, I'm going to ask you to set it up for us. What is the story of Dune and who is Paul Atreides? Yes, what is the story of this four volume, <laughs> 4,000 page, vast space spanning yeah, novel? In a minute. In a got... nutshell, Sean. <laughs> well, essentially, what we've got here is great house politics taking place in space. Paul Atreides, played by Timothy Chalamet, is the scion of the Atreides dynasty. His dad, Duke Leto, has been informed by the Emperor, you guys are taking over the administration of the planet Dune, aka Arrakis, mm. which is where all the spice is made manufactured spice being an hallucinogenic drug which enables you to navigate space got it so far Sean? Got, <laughs> got it, it so, so far, far. Yeah. right now i mean the, you, this you might look at this and go this is the absolute archetype of stuck in your bedroom dungeons and dragons mm. uh, self-contained fantasy that has nothing to say about the outside world yeah you would be completely wrong in that because what it is about it's about it's about leadership it's about family but most importantly it is about the clash between the desert civilization of arrakis the fremen the people who live on this mm. desert world and the frankly imperialists who come to their world subjugate it take their stuff 
And mm. then are surprised when the native <laughs> inhabitants are unhappy about this. Mm. You may detect resonances in our world today. This book was written in the 1960s mm-hmm. before we were still fully digesting the notion of what imperialism was. Uh, I think it lands more, far more relevantly now, not least because the world of the Fremen that Frank Herbert created, they, they are a desert people and a yeah. lot of Dune is effectively, to, you know, it's Lawrence of Arabia in space mm-hmm. uh, in which a, quote, heavy quotes Westerner, Paul Atreides, goes over to the side of the Fremen, goes over to the side of the desert people, understands what they're about and becomes their leader and avatar. You may wish to discuss the white saviour complex in that, possibly. Mm-hmm. What Herbert built into it was the idea that at the core of Fremen society is, is Islam. And mm-hmm. they believe Paul Atreides to be the Mahdi, the, 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 the returning mm-hmm. Messiah. So the idea that in 10,000 years' time, Islam would still be a powerful force and in many respects the most powerful force in human history was fascinating. And the David Lynch version has its flaws because it mm. absolutely bombs you to death with an info dump in the first three minutes and many people who watched it will feel a lot like Barry mm. Hearn being made to watch Magma by Steve. <laughs> no idea what the hell's going on. Yes, Villeneuve uh, approaches it much more sensitively. The story is told through personality, character and mm. action. We discover bit by bit how this universe works. We discover the web of obligation. We discover the nature of what imperial rule is. We meet the dreadful Harkonnens, the bad guys, led by Baron Harkonnen who's basically Steve Bannon in space, mm-hmm. uh, utterly amoral. Duke Leto, Paul's dad, is what good leadership is. Yes. Baron Harkonnen is, is, is corruption personified. So ultimately, you know, as a book that I know quite well, I loved it. I found it didn't shortchange me at all. Mm. Sean, what was your take? Because I think you maybe have a little less ownership of this than me. <laughs> I certainly do. I don't come to it with with... With so much. I mean, I'll, I'll get to about Sting in the underpants is really my <laughs> my past lives in this uh, movie. Um, it's not unambitious. It tells you what a big, 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 big budget it has at every turn. But saying that, there's a lot of space in it. it the exposition could have been very clunky. It's mm-hmm. drawn out. It needs that two and a half hours to do that. Um, and yet I felt it's hero's journey. It's an Oedipal story. Yes. <laughs> we get that. It's him and his mum, isn't it? Mm. And then he might get, you know, she might get ousted for the girlfriend at some point. Zendaya, if you are expecting her, isn't really in it till the end. We see flash forwards or flashbacks. We don't know what they are. She appears in visions, but it, it is essentially a journey of a man and his mother and these epic struggles they have to do. And by hour one, I was finding it slightly dull. Without wanting to sort of overspoiler it, as yeah, we go into late, as we go into later volumes of the book, and I've yes. no idea how the film will handle this, the hero's journey is thoroughly debunked. And we know it's part one because it says at the beginning title, mm. this is part one, so we know there is going to be more. But I felt it was extremely drawn out. If you like sand, this is the movie for you. <sighs> um, I like the sandworms. The sandworms are amazing. But there was something about he is supposing, Denis, that we are interested in the character from the off. And I think we need, I think they needed to prove themselves a little bit more. I think Timothy Chalamet actually does find it really hard to lead and to carry a two and a half hour movie as you know, as the main character. I, I actually found him completely persuasive. Really? And I, what I loved about it was the fact that every every single one of these characters that I have a familiarity with exploded into three dimensions. I like the fact that Timothy Chalamet is not, you know, a heavily muscled Jason Momoa-style hero. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, quite androgynous. He's quite uh, skinny. He's got yes. floppy hair. Yes. Um, he also appears in the French Dispatch, which we'll be talking about he, later. He's, he's all over the show. extremely French. Yes. Um, and I like the fact that the, the hero that we are following, mm-hmm. and this, again, because... 
those who are familiar with the book will know that part of Paul's destiny comes from him being between worlds, between mm. the worlds of the Fremen and the worlds of the, the Empire, but also the worlds of male and female, the worlds of reason and instinct and the, the, all the rest of it. He is a bridge. I think he fitted the role far better than Carl mm. McLachlan did in, 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 the, in the David Lynch adaptation. Steve, were you a Dune head? Because it fits quite well into the world of forward-looking cosmic music that you like. Well, I was a sci-fi head back in the day. I did read Dune, but I think I may have been a bit too young to sort of appreciate it then. And obviously I saw the, the, the David Lynch film. But And I, I must, must, must say I preferred the Jodorowsky documentary about what would have happened if he'd have made Dune, because I think he was in the pipeline for it. And I'm looking forward to seeing it because um, I do like a good sci-fi film, although I am much more looking forward to hopefully the sequel to District 9, that apparently is coming out oh, right. in District Ten because <laughs> because I want to I want to know if the guy that ended up as a prawn is going to get <laughs> saved by the guy who went off in the spaceship or the other prawn that went off in the spaceship because the guy the prawn that went off in the spaceship said I'm coming back for you mm. he was just left there as a prawn mm. you know that's that's more cutting edge sci fi for me so hopefully he comes back to rescue him Sean the look of this film. Villeneuve now has a look, doesn't he? It is. We yes. saw it in Blade Runner. Yes. We saw it in Arrival. Those beautiful ovoid spaceships and the idea that, it, you know, rather than gleaming metal, everything seems to be made of ceramic. And there's a lot that seems out of focus because there's always mist. There's always something. There's darkness. You'd have to see this in a cinema. You must not see this on a small screen because it would not work. It's very dark as a movie in that way. It, people are lurking in shadows quite literally most mm. of the time, unless they're on a dune, which they can't be on for very long because it's so hot. Obviously, um, it does look beautiful. Um, I did. I found Blade Runner twenty forty nine actually too long as well. So maybe that is just me. Arrival is fantastic. And maybe that's a better correlation, I think, um, because what he does capture when he does capture spirit and not understanding and there is a destiny, but you don't definitely want it. He takes those cliches out of it. He's very good at taking the hero's journey cliche and sort of trying to bend it and mash it. I just not quite sure that... I think there was just too much sand. Honestly, I felt it just whipped by. I you thought, do. is it finished? It's, it's oh, certainly I... just started. I could have sat there for another three hours. Oh, well, bless. I'm it re- is your sort of thing. It is, it? It's yeah. so me. It is so me. Yeah. Moving on, we always ask our guests to bring in a tune for the ears of the nation. And this week is no different at all. John Harris, what current tune have you plucked from your Suede record bag to bring to the listeners' attention? Once I knew I was doing this programme, um, I, I uh, sort of looked around maybe with a little bit more, uh, I don't know what the word is, focus or whatever than I usually would. And I was reminded that Kate LeBon, a Welsh singer-songwriter who I think lives in LA now, is doing that thing where you're about to come back and you put a track up to start with. I think she's one of the few people left who sort of came out of, broadly speaking, sort of guitar culture and what remained of independent music and all that and has consistently done unclassifiable and really, really interesting things. It sounds from this track, which isn't that the most eventful thing I've ever heard? <laughs> Uh, I hope there are perhaps slightly more <laughs> entertaining things in the pipeline from her. But nonetheless, this serves notice that um, she's going to be interesting again. This is Running Away by Kate LeBon. No, I have to 
Let's have some new music. Self-Esteem, a.k.a. Rebecca Lucy Taylor, releases her second album, Prioritise Pleasure, this weekend. After singles such as How Can I Help You and I Do This All The Time, how does Self-Esteem's confessional worldview translate as a 13-track pop album? We play you something... But we have clearance reasons, so we're going to put it on the Spotify playlist. Or if we're talking to Steve, we're going to show you to the Bandcamp link. (laughs) Okay, let's hop right in. John Harris, I'm going to start with you. The first track, I'm Fine, sets out self-esteem stall. One of the lines in it, do you understand the pain you cause when you see a body just for sport? What do you think of self-esteem? I think it's really, really interesting, well-taken, complicated stuff and it sort of speaks, I mean, I'm I'm too old really, but it seems to speak to what I would imagine and what she is obviously keen to tell me is the sort of modern 30-something condition, mm-hmm. particularly as far as women are concerned. Mm-hmm. And it does that really, really well. She's got a beautiful turn of phrase. There's one There's one track in it which I, on it which I think is called Moody. Mm-hmm. It talks about, yes. it says, sexting you at the mental health talk seems counterproductive. That's the first line, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So straight away you sort of, you know, you have a sense of what you're dealing with here and it's done really, really well. Um, there's another track called I Do This All The Time, which is all spoken word, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Where you get Until a sense the chorus, of her. And, yes. her. and she's really good at like lines that you would imagine might op- open novels. You know, there's one thing in it about, like I got your phone and I found the picture of the baby you had with your last girlfriend and all yes. this, you know. And straight As your profile away, picture, yeah. It's yeah, full yeah. of these head-turning lines which sort of open up whole worlds. Yes. And she's using the medium of pop music. Coming from this sort of, from what I gather, this sort of indie folk, broadly speaking, background, she's mm. using the medium of pop music and doing it very cleverly. The only thing I wondered about and a slight sort of ambivalence is she's not the first person to have done that. Sometimes it's a bit like looking at a Turner Prize exhibit. Like it's really well done. And it says something really powerful and all the rest of it. But mm. is it too? Is it maybe a little bit too clever? Really? Like it's, I don't know. I just mm. I you know can you invest that much in it when people are making pop music for pop music's sake and it and there's no sort of meta element that's easier to surrender to. You know the Pet Shop Boys are really really good at clever meta pop music, but it's quite a, it's quite a skill. I think sometimes she might fall off the wire, but by and large, it's hard to deny that this is a really interesting fascinating sort of trailblazing record so if this were the old music press i'd give it eight out of ten <laughs> i think you're right about the lyricism because a lot of the lines i wrote down and one when i'm buried in the ground i won't be able to make your birthday drinks but i was still <laughs> guilty mm. that's totally stevie smith she's a poet yeah. this is poetry this writing you say as soon as you hear these one-liners you get just pulled into this world and the narrative andrew is this the new adele is this the adele that we need it's heartbreak it's confession it's honest it's rude at points but it's pop well my heartbreaking confession is that i haven't <laughs> listened to adele at all i have not listened <laughs> you to would adele. have heard a no i've managed shop. to avoid i've just it's it's, it's coming it's, out it's music is not is not coming at me this <laughs> in isolation this in isolation i thought was was great because it is it is self-excavation without self-pity and that's mm. rare okay. most yep. self-excavation in pop involves poor me and mm-hmm. this is not poor me. This is dreadful me. I found it completely disarming and entertaining and clever and the black, black, black sense of humour. 
and I think that I got a, I dissected a strong streak of Rotherham in this. She's fully aware of her own faults. Um, she's not frightened to p- paint herself in the most dreadful light possible. I think there's I forget which tune it is. I think it's one of the singles where she says, "I love you. I think you're beautiful, but I really hope you fail without me." Yeah, um, I do this yeah, all the yeah. time. I do this it's all the time. The, yeah. yeah, it's absolutely stuffed with with great lines. But and 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 when one is sort of doing the this music is poetry thing, it mm. tends to stumble on the delivery. You know, we are surrounded by and it's often male artists who really cram in the wordplay. Yeah. And the music can't hold it up. What this is is it is exultant, euphoric pop music as a fray and of, with often actual choirs and choruses mm, of mm. sort of you can imagine the tears of singers uh, stood up behind self-esteem to frame lyrics that like I say paint her in the least flattering light mm. what I also like is the fact that she really understands uh, how to flip voices on I do this all the time and one of the verses she flips into the from the first verses she's talking about herself and describing her shortcomings and then she flips into an, an exterior, exterior voice which seems to be a friend or possibly a parent or an, another judgmental figure saying why do you why do you Keep drawing attention to yourself. Why do you make so much noise? Be still. You're a good, strong, tall, sturdy girl, aren't yeah, you? Yeah. Start, just uh, get back in your box. Let the world shape you. This is pop music that understands and is it is is fully conscious of the possibilities of pop music, so much so that it can flip them around and she can move herself around as a character in her mm. own songs. Mm. Plus, at the basic level, it sounds very exultant. It's full of bangers. There's a little bit of it that sound like Massive Attack for old people like mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. There's bits of it that sound like fully charged, full-on Dua Lipa mega pop. Mm-hmm. I liked it. There's techno too. Sean, speaking for all women, again, <laughs> every I, woman I on do earth. every week. What do you yes. think? I absolutely love this. I love her. I think it's really important. I think there are points where the honesty really disarms me and makes me uncomfortable. The first track, I'm Fine, also has the bit towards the end, the spoken bit, which sounds like a field recording, where she's saying, me and my friends, when we're out and we're approached by men, we pretend to bark like dogs because no man can deal with a woman who seems deranged. And there's all this sort of absolute absolutely disarming stuff because this is about safety this is about if you express your sexuality what you get back uh, all these things there's a lot of the failed relationship stuff but this is essentially disco music it's confessional it's i will survive but with the sleeve of mods i think i, I will survive time. despite myself <laughs> something like that or victoria woods met cardi b at the service station they've decided to do <laughs> yeah, a, co- yeah. a collab there's something about it that is so original but so important and so it could be so easily dismissed because she's just gone right this is a pop record right i want to play stadiums i have this ambition you know and here i am deal with it um that i just think is absolutely fantastic and i say it still it makes me feel all, all sorts of different conflicted emotions while there are bangers at the same time which i think is just fabulous and she's also it's taking wonderful. the role of i want to be the mega pop star but i'm going to be a very disturbing mega pop star i'm, I'm gonna, gonna be honest is i'm I gonna think i'm gonna yeah. give, i'm gonna make you sort of question yourself a little bit there's no gloss there's no gloss in the way that she presents herself visually as well you see an, a non-photoshopped body there and you see someone trying to be really comfortable with it but then songs about not being comfortable with it I just think she's really great really refreshing and um, all power to her I think she's quite divisive but I find that endlessly fascinating a lot of people take take her and and, and I, find, I find her too strong or this that and the other but I think that's part of the discourse man part of the discourse mm. disco discourse Steve now I'm presume you haven't heard the record but would you give this a listen from what we're talking about well um i i did tap into a, a little bit oh, yeah. of it and and um what, what i listened to uh, and and what you've said and everybody who's, who's added to this conversation i think it's been so eloquent in, in selling this album because i think it probably does deserve to be listened to and if i was listening to this and i was buying pop and listening to pop i would be out tomorrow to buy it <laughs> because Yay. how you how you presented it 
it, it feels to me like it's important and it's actually more cutting edge than most of the crud that's out there. <laughs> and I, I definitely will give it a listen now just based on, on your recommendations. I would say that Andrew's gone up in my estimation no end by saying he doesn't particularly care for Adele or no time for Adele. I would, I would, I would hope that self-esteem becomes a bigger artist than Adele, but uh, sadly, I don't think that market's out there because mainly people want a lowest common denominator style. Mm. I think you should do a remix. Can you can you get her people and do a Cosmisha, Utopia Strong Cosmisha version? Remix? Yeah. We could, but, but but perhaps we'd take out the everything of, of Adele. We could do <laughs> I mean, a, a remix, a remix yeah. of Adele, take out the voice and perhaps just right. get no, one self-esteem. little no. self-esteem. and loop it. Do a remix of self-esteem, Steve. That's, That's what, what we people want. want. Right, let's have another tune from the Steve Davis Interesting Record Box. Steve, you're going on tour with Teeth of the Sea with Utopia Strong Suit. For listeners who don't know Teeth of the Sea, who are they and what are they all about and why do you love them? Oh, Teeth of the Sea have become great friends of, of, of ours. And um, I bumped into one of the members who plays a modular synthesizer. And if, if it wasn't for him, Mike Bourne, I wouldn't have got down the, gone down the route I've gone down. So they hold a special place in my heart. And they play pretty banging music. It's great to watch them. Hard to actually describe what style of music they play, but they're on the Rocket Recordings label, which um, sort of champions psych music as a genre. I think you have to listen to you know, lots of bands. It's impossible to sort of like sum them up. You just have to listen to them. And this particular track, um, Field Punishment, for me sort of hits into a little bit of a techno area and it was also pretty rocky as well. Well, the tragic news is it's going onto our Spotify list. <laughs> <laughs> but here's an excerpt of it. This is Teeth of the Sea with Field Punishment. films. Wes Anderson's latest movie, The French Dispatch, is an ode to the long-lost days of papery magazines. Magazines? Remember them, anyone? No. Hey. No, no. <laughs> Starring Bill Murray. Well, it would, wouldn't it? Tilda Swinton, Lea Sadu, Timothée Chalamet, him again, Francis Dormand and many more. Andrew went to see it. He got to hang out with Lea Sadu in the process. He's getting me back for John Cooper Clark, you see. Let's listen to the trailer to get a feel for The French Dispatch. It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. Decent people. Supposed to be charming. He assembled a team of the best expatriate journalists of his time. Berenson, Sazerac, Kremens, Roebuck Wright. These were his people. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. Andrew, it's a tribute to print, this film, and apparently a tribute to the New Yorker magazine. This must be right up your street. Well, it is right up my street. It is such a fun movie. It is ridiculous. It is colourful. It is insane. It's full of the the trademark hyper-dry humour of Wes Anderson and also 
the famous palette of Wes Anderson, beautifully mm-hmm. colour-coordinated. Mm-hmm. Got some swatches on the go here. <laughs> um, in terms of magazines, though, this is a pain to a particular kind of magazine, a hyper-literate, the kind of thing that's only found on an Upper, upper West Side uh, coffee table. The standing joke is it's the French dispatch of a tiny newspaper in Kansas, which shouldn't be producing a French edition at all. Mm. That said, it's not really representing the world of magazines. It's representing a tiny, tiny slice of it. Yeah. But the tiny slice that it represents and that it hypes and uh, over-accentuates to comic proportions is, is beautifully done. This is a, a, a film in the form of a magazine. There are three features bookended by intros and outros. There is the story of revolutionary French uh, kids presented in a full-on Nouvelle Vague manner, right. complete with yay-yay music, including music by Jarvis Cocker, young women who never take off their motorcycle helmets because mm-hmm. it's France and it's the 60s. There is the story of an artist in prison, in which Léa Seydoux plays, mm-hmm. plays the muse. Very different in tone, and also very different in tone, is the absurdly overwrought story of police cuisine. <laughs> told by Jeffrey Wright in the role of the most ludicrously pretentious magazine writer you could possibly imagine. So in the Wes Anderson style, it, the reality is turned up beyond any comprehension. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we enter this hyper world of uh, brightly coloured, over-accentuated characters, utterly bone-dry humour. Mm. But under, underneath it all, they, these are picaresques. These are high-end romps mm-hmm. through a particular oat world. Now, there are, there, I'm sure there are people out there who will find it somewhat twee because people do find Wes Anderson twee sometimes. Yes. I tend to think those people are rather joyless. I tend to think it's a bit mean. Is that you, Sean? Yeah, You're a bit joyless? I'm finding him more and more twee. Um, I do find, I used to love his early work, but the uh, later canon um, has become just the palette and the mood board, and I wondered what was underneath. Detractors also bemoan the lack of diversity. What's this film like? Well, I mean, it's very undiverse in the fact that every single person in it is a megastar, so it's, <laughs> you know, it's, but, you know, Bill Murray, Les Adieu, Adrian. But are they all well educated? What's the, cla- what's the class aspect like? The Andrew? class aspect, mm. Sean, uh, is well, it's a, it is it is a cross section of a particular kind of uh, fantasy idea of French society. It's yeah. not real France, yeah. uh, and you know we do meet uh, you know drug addicted showgirls, and we meet policemen, and we meet psychopathic murderers, and we meet incredibly rich plutocrats. But it's not reality. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the idea of that 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 we ought to be representing real world diversity. In, it, it's like saying with diversity in Tom and Jerry. It is a hyper cartoon. <laughs> mm. And in fact, parts of it, no spoilers, I'm not trying not to ruin this for Steve yeah. who wants to see yeah. it. We do sometimes enter literal unreality. And, you know, anybody who's seen his films know that, you know, there's animation mm. and there's claymation and mm. there's so forth. There's uh, illustration. That's the bargain. That's that's the that's mm-hmm. the Wes Anderson universe. And mm. you either like it or you don't. Much as you either like repetitive prog rock music or you don't. <laughs> and, I, you know, I'm all for divisive art. Yes. I, I, and I think if, if, it's, <laughs> if it's dividing us, then that's got to be good. Mm. But I just came out of it feeling elated. Oh, okay. The world is so bloody miserable. Yeah. And you'll hear me in a moment fawning to Leia idea about what fun it is. <laughs> um, I did come out elated and I mm. felt like it was something, you know, I do like to balance my meds. So, yeah, Dune with the intense, extreme, out there, unreality. And this, which is not exactly a utopia mm. because people do die and there are crimes mm. and terrible mm. things happen. But it's, it is uh, the presentation of the world of a French comic book. Okay. With those primary colours. And so- I kind of needed it. So should the very cynical me go and see it, Andrew Harrison? You um, might come out less cynical. Oh, oh you might, my goodness. You might call it one, rather one over by it. Come on, Jarvis is in it. You, know. you spoke to the very gorgeous Léa Sadou, which we will hear in a moment. Is this a true ensemble piece? Is everybody given... I mean, we say Bill Murray is a kind of a star, but it, it seems like it's more of... 
uh, uh, even-handed. Bill, Bill Murray is more of a, is more of a of a bookend and a cameo, really. But while while it is a huge ensemble cast, in the nature of, I mean, it was completed before the pandemic, mm-hmm. so this is not one of those things where they had to find that you know, had to write a story inside a tiny podcast yes. studio, uh, <laughs> where you could just have one person in it. The people are very broadly drawn caricatures, and I, I think the role the, the, the role of the actor is to bring something out of that caricature. Mm-hmm. And I think because it is a fantastic A list, Adrian Brody is great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is great. Let's say do the performance that she gives is of you know utter studied blankness, mm-hmm. which is a very Wes Anderson thing. In a sense, that's actors going against their instincts. There's not a lot of emoting here, mm. but that that's the that's the power and the and the persuasion of the performances, and it stands so much against exactly what you expect from every other film that you're going to be shown in the next six months. <laughs> that I think it definitely deserves your time. Okay, give it a go, Sean. Oh, I might do that this weekend. Go with Steve. Steve wants to see it. <laughs> Steve, we'll go together. <laughs> yes. Hey. Yes, I, I think it's, it's been it's been sold to me. I, I think I'm looking forward to seeing this more so than June, even though June might be a great mm-hmm. film um, because I suppose I know the storyline. You know, and, and but I will both be watching both, so um, we'll book two tickets. Fantastic. Where's Anderson's June? I'd watch that. <laughs> Let's listen to your interview anyway, Andrew, with the very beautiful Leia Sodu. Hello, hello, Leia. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm not bad. I'm Andrew Harrison from The Culture Bunker. I saw The French Dispatch last night. What a great film. It's so fun. It's mad. It's silly. It's beautiful. It's moving. You have got a huge backlog of stuff coming out that was delayed because of the pandemic. You got this. You you played a celebrity foreign correspondent in France. Of course, no time to die. Do you look back on these films and think, this is a different time. This is a different me. (laughs) Me. Yes. Uh, And at the same time, always the same. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, it's crazy. I've lost uh, the sense of, uh, of time, in a way. I've always felt that when you play a character, it's a certain version of yourself. You act with your own emotions, but it takes like the, the, just, it's just the, the costume, which is different. Yeah. It's fair to say that your role in the French Dispatch as Simone, the muse of yes. Benicio del Toro, as, among many other things, is a pretty demanding one. Amongst other things, you're called to spend long periods of time naked in some very, very awkward poses in what looks like quite a cold studio. How did Wes sell this role to you? Did he pitch it as, you are the muse of an artist psychopath, go? No, he would never say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we didn't really talk about the character like in an obvious way. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was more like he sent me the lines and it's like with Wes, you have to guess. So I didn't really picture the character, to be honest, at first. And it's when I went to Angoulême on the set that I watched the little film that he made because he makes those little animated films. Basically, he plays all the parts, which is absolutely first brilliant, but also hilarious. Mm. And uh, so I saw the, the the little film and then I understood what I had to do, you know. Even like the nudity, we didn't really talk about it. You know, he's very... He's very shy. There is a, definitely a Wes Anderson sensibility. This is your second film with him, isn't it? You're cloaked in the Grand Budapest Hotel. It's also it's an ensemble picture. When you're together with your fellow actors, when you're doing reads and so forth, do you feel that like there is a Wes Anderson sensibility and you kind of know where you are and where you're working? Yes, exactly. Yes, there is, for sure. And also, it's like you have to get this special uh, rhythm and pace. And you say a lot also without words. That is something that I really enjoyed. The film has been described as, as a kind of a comic elegy for that James Thurber style of magazine writing, that very oat 
US style uh, where journalists are, are valued and venerated. But it's also an affectionate satire on Frenchness and on, on France, on food, on romance, on radical politics. As an actual French person, how do you see the vision of France that's in French dispatch? Is it like an American vision or do you see it as ringing true? First, it's his fantasy, right? Yeah. It's not yeah. like Wes is not a realistic, uh, I mean, he, he, it's not realistic. It's pure fiction. And he's uh, very uh, visual. It almost feels like uh, an animated film. I can relate to his, uh, you know, vision of, of France in a way because he got inspired and he's inspired by, the, by French cinema, by La Nouvelle Vague and all the films from François Truffaut, uh, Jean-Luc Godard. These are also the films that I, that I love. So I, I kind of, uh, and Jacques Tati, and, you know, in a way I share the same uh, taste. It's a beautiful movie. It's really exciting and wonderful. It's such fun. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Finally, Little Known Merseyside four-piece The Beatles are back, back, back. <laughs> a super deluxe remastered edition of their fraught and fractured final album, Let It Be, is out now. Four additional discs of extra Beatle bits, or just the one if that's all you've got time for. Our guest John Harris, as we were saying earlier, has a new book out, The Beatles Get Back, a lavish 240-page whopper ahead of Peter Jackson's much-awaited documentary of the same name. But what did this mysterious lost recording outfit actually sound like? You might not be familiar <laughs> with him. In your face, record clearance people. We've only got The Beatles, haven't we? Yay. Long and winding road from Let It Be. John, our former mutual boss, David Hepworth of Q and Mojo fame, used to say that Let It Be was the Beatles album that Oasis fans would buy because the Beatles look cool on the front and then they get a terrible shock when they listen to it because it wasn't the Beatles they were expecting. Is Let It Be really the daunting listening prospect that it's sometimes thought to be? Not really, no. <laughs> it was actually the first Beatles album I ever bought. Yeah? Age sort of nine or ten, I was on holiday with my family in the North Yorkshire Moors. And there was a record shop in Whitby, and um, which isn't there anymore. The record shop is in Whitby still is. And, um, yeah. and uh, I went in there and bought it because I think the film had been on telly. And it's got Get Back on it, The Long and Winding Road, which um, in the, I mean, the Phil Spector arrangement with all the syrupy strings doesn't do it much justice, but it's a great song. The title track, uh, Don't Let Me Down isn't on it, but it's from around that period. So uh, it's pretty good. You know, it was the whole thing was done in about three weeks, and they were meant to be getting back to their roots. So it's not as ambitious or as sort of jaw dropping as the White Album. Abbey Road is more fully realised, but even when the Beatles were sort of having an off day, it was still pretty good. So there's that. But then the three the three um, documentary films that are coming up that Peter Jackson has worked on are amazing. Just the simple pleasure of seeing the Beatles so beautifully restored. Everything is pin sharp, and it's a London of copious cigarette smoke and every man wears a hat and fought in the Second World War and there are the and there are the Beatles in the Apple basement and at Twickenham Film Studios being the Beatles and you get six hours of it 
And it's contrary to what you've been told about this period, which is it has its moments of tension and sadness, you know, but we've been led to believe so far that this was an absolute nadir and it was an utterly miserable phase of their existence. And it wasn't really like that at all. So even though I'm professionally involved in it, when I first saw the rough cuts of Peter Jackson's material, it was just amazingly exciting. You know, it's the Beatles restored to life. There aren't many groups that's happened to because most groups didn't leave behind 60 hours of amazing footage. I mean, this thing has got, I mean, I've got the, the sort of two CD edition here, which has got one thing of outtake highlights, which is full of what we were talking about earlier. It's like, it's the little asides and that sort of st- strange kind of frisson of hearing, this is a little bit of history happening again before your ears. There's another three discs of this uh, on the Mega Mega edition, all of which is available on Steve's most hated uh, listening platform, <laughs> Spotify. As, as, as you delved through it, yeah, I mean, in a sense, it's like what I'm asking you about the, the book research. I'm now asking you about, about the album. Did things leap out from this that surprised you as somebody who knows the Beatles inside out that you're going into these different ways of working and different ways that they kind of bounced off each other? You know, with a group a group like the Rolling Stones, for example, I mean, it's not wholly true, but I always had this idea that the Rolling Stones lived in a castle somewhere in Ireland and got up at six o'clock in the evening and went to bed at six o'clock in the morning, you know, and um, had Kenneth Anger around for tea and all that kind of stuff, you know. And the Beatles throughout this, are people who are living this very sort of rarefied sort of unique existence, but they always have one foot in the same reality as the rest of us. And they're very sort of relatable in that sense. So on this on the, this box set, you hear George coming in the studio and he's he's been writing something on and off for about six months, the song something, capital S, and he's stuck on a line and he says, what have I got here? Something in the way she moves attracts me like a what? What's, what should I put in there? And John says, John Lennon says, well, just sing the, just put the first word in there that comes into your head and go back to it later. And so he sits there and sings, attracts me like a pomegranate. And then he sings, attracts me like a cauliflower. And he still hasn't quite got it. And so you can tell he goes off to sort of have another think about it. There's a lot of that. You sort of hear them at close quarters creating, you know. In one of the films, Paul McCartney's sitting there with his bass going chonga, chonga, chonga. And he starts to go, Jojo was a, and then sort of over the next 10 or 15 minutes. Get Back comes to life. Now, I think that's fascinating to see with any sort of artist of any quality, but you very rarely see it, you know. There aren't any films of um, anyone from Neuer, the Pet Shop Boys, to Pink Floyd, to Jimi Hendrix, or whoever it is, you know, Joni Mitchell, in the act of creativity at close quarters, and that's what happens here. So it's a lovely thing to have. McCartney famously hated it for years and had it restored as Let It Be Naked with all the Phil Spector string bits taken off in 2003. Has he mellowed on it by now from your your contacts with the Beatles extended cinematic universe, do you think? Yeah, I think that the sort of received view of this, that it was this unrelentingly miserable period, the Beatles themselves came to that understanding. You know, if you look back in the interview archive, they all talk about it as this horrible period. But I suppose that's what happens when there's the existence you lead yourself and there's your own existence presented back to you, you know. So the received opinion starts to colour your own understanding of it. So I think probably Paul McCartney was wary of it for that reason. And also, you know, the long and winding robots you've just played a bit of has got this over-the-top string arrangement on it. But you hear it, if you hear it in isolation, which I have, it sounds like something from the, like the incidental music for the Thornbirds or something, you know. It's very unbeatly. But um, it was... Giles Martin, who um, who led the sort of um, the, the fettling up the remix of this, said to Paul McCartney, well, this is words to the effect of this is quite odd because I know you don't like this, but 
this version of the album, the Phil Spector version, where these three tracks are garlanded in all these strings, that's what people know as the album. And Paul McCartney said, well, you're right. So we just have to leave it as it is. What Giles Martin has very cleverly and subtly done, though, is he sort of dialed it down a bit. So Phil Spector's over-the-top orchestrations, they sound quite polite now. There's a sort of decorous quality, whereas before, I remember hearing the long and winding road, and Paul McCartney's, it's like Paul McCartney's in one corner of the studio and he starts it, and then this 50-piece orchestra crashes in like Beethoven's Fifth or something, and it isn't like that now. So in that sense, equilibrium has been restored, I suppose. This is the kind of, as you say, it's the 50th anniversary of Bloody Bass, the last of the canonical Beatles re-releases. They've all been done now. And the scrupulous nature of this, there can't be that much left in the can. Is the canon now set now? Because I mean, obviously, the, you know, the Beatles famously are an ongoing business concern and will always be looking at new things. But do you think this is like the corpus is there now? And what we're going to be seeing now is just different angles on it. What a question. I think this is the last bit of the jigsaw to be sort of put the right way round. So there's an element of that, really, that this sort of uh, the the gap between the received understanding of this period and what actually happened was sort of waiting to be corrected. And so in that sense, it sort of settled something. Whether it sort of settles it for good, I don't know. You know, it's hard to imagine a, a world in which we don't sort of return to the Beatles and sort of fresh things of one kind or another aren't discovered. But in that sense, I suppose there isn't much more to go. Although, interestingly, as far as expanded versions are concerned, that only started with Sergeant Pepper. So anything before then has yet to be subject to this treatment. You could still do a revolver or rubber sole one if you wanted. But you know what? You'd have to ask Apple. This is a slightly delicate conversation for me because I'm a little, little bit on the payroll at the moment. So you'd have, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> but it's more the public. It's more the public's appetite. We did some promotion for Let It Be, and we went around London asking people what they thought about the Beatles. And everybody of every age, background, all of that, had a sort of positive opinion and could talk very sort of fondly about them. You know, I know you occasionally meet slightly narcissistic people at dinner parties. Oh, is that you, Sean? Do you not like them? No. Sorry, I kind of I don't. I mean, I'm kind of cold on the Beatles. I just I, don't, I would never go. Oh, let's put the Beatles on. I recognise <laughs> what they are, which is you know probably the best band band there ever was because they kind of sketched it all out. But kind of growing up where I I grew up, it was just Beatles, 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 course, Beatles all yeah. the time. And yeah. at some point, you want to go. Yeah. yeah, but what about the teardrop explodes? Mm. What you, about the bunny man? Charlotte, it's an interesting question. Leaving the music aside, which is obviously quite a lot to leave aside. <laughs> yeah. But the the story of them and this sort of rapid progress through the 60s and everything that happened to them, be it their, you know, their gay manager dying and then they go off to India and, you know, they, they're the first British rock group to, to take America and all that. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a very magnetic story, isn't it? It is, but it's what came after and how they're then recontextualised and how they're seen in the white boy template. I have had this conversation before, not the first, about people who can tell me the rock and roll renegade-ness, you know, how they actually broke lots of moulds. They broke the form. But what I see is the form being given back to me, back to me, back to me through magazines, through male A&R men, through that sort of thing. It's another conversation about maleness of rock. I was a bit of a stones bird. So, I mean, there was that. It was something that was more bluesy <laughs> to me. Um, I, I still think they're interesting. I may be persuaded. I do think the White Album is all right. But I find 
the myths and the legends actually just bore me senseless. It is funny, though, isn't it, how the, the most radical, strange, ever-evolving, weirdest mm, band mm. ever somehow got recast as this kind of small-c conservative choice. Yeah, they're not like... I mean, as, and you see that in the film. So, again, you know, as against mm. the sort of... A, the, the somewhat laddish appropriation of them in the 90s, that emotionally sensitive, literate aspect of them that you see in the films. And, then also and I Yo- would like to see that, And Yoko's yeah. in it all the time. And they, yeah. and they and they talk about Yoko, and there she is. So again, you know, yeah. mercifully, mm-hmm. we're being sort of pushed away from when all that sort mm-hmm. of recontextualization happened, and it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There you go, listeners. Check out the brand new Beatles. They're totally <laughs> different. It's not the Beatles that you're expecting. <laughs> and we've just got time for me to squeeze in one tune. Sometimes I get to play a tune, don't I, Sean? You do. What on earth have you chosen, and why are you forcing it upon our impressionable listeners? Um, it's Sea Power, the oh. artists formerly known as British Sea yeah. Power, who are returning. Uh, they have a, a lead single from an album that's coming out next year called Folly. The album is called Everything Was Forever, and it is a mm. great, poignant thing about what we expect to be permanent, never being permanent. Yep. Obviously, they changed their name. They dropped the British because yes. they did no longer want to be associated with uh, you know, the potential ugly nationalism. Mm-hmm. that went with that mm-hmm. it was a point of debate I'm still not entirely sure that it was yeah. the right thing whether they should yeah, have yeah. held on to it I'm glad you say that yeah, well, like, it'd be nice if sort of nice interesting sensitive people were allowed to still be British wouldn't it I suppose so in that sense I thought it was a little, uh, maybe a little bit unfortunate but then I'm not them but then it was great to see all of the GB News people getting absolutely enraged about this, about a band they'd never heard <laughs> giving of. Giving them lots of coverage. Giving them lots of coverage. Anyway, yeah. this, this, this single is absolutely fantastic. It's called Folly and it contains, it is, it is the title track without actually being named after the album. And I just think it's beautiful and it made me cry a little bit, which is always good. It's the end of an epic podcast like Dune and it's closing time <laughs> chatter. What are we going to be discussing before we kick off our plimsolls and play the roof of Bunker Towers to a nonplussed and disinterested public? I'm going to be playing the bass. Um, John, what's your closing time chatter? What's been occupying your mind over the past week? Is Ridley Road really good or not very good? And I still can't make up my mind. What do you think? Well, I, I'm watching it and I'm really sort of addicted to it. Um, but, but the more I think about it, the more there's something about it that's doing my head in. Uh, it's quite sort of, I don't know what the word is, a little bit clunky and stagey. And when the thugs were outside the synagogue this week, they didn't look terribly thuggy. And it was, you know, the, the credibility gap suddenly opened up. And I find some of the, the premises of the storyline uh, rather test one's levels of belief as well. But I'm still watching it and I still think it has something. It, it, I mean, it knows what it's got to say in modern Britain and it's sort of overdoing it. But I'm, I still really like it. But I'm starting to doubt myself and I need some input. So I thought you two might help. I'm not a fan. I, th- I think it's, it's, it is the call the midwifeification of a really important <laughs> political moment. I think it's, it, it's buried a really exciting uh, and fascinating piece of, of British history under a whole load of Sunday night on BBC One uh, sludge. And I, I, I mean, I'm a huge Eddie Marson fan. I wanted to see him in a British version of Babylon Berlin, not like I say, you know, heartbeat with Nazis. I didn't know that was what I was worrying about, Andrew, and you've just told me what I was worrying about. I, I suppose I'm wa- I want the sort of I may destroy you of period drama. We're still waiting for that <laughs> answer, aren't we? Yeah. Can someone do something with the form that's that interesting? And this is the reverse of it. It's very conservative, isn't it, in the way that it's done? And that's why I it's don't like it. It's extremely conservative, yeah. And I think what people are liking about it is the very faithful representation or the, the, the representation of 60s London that chimes with you. Um, I think that's what people are liking. But underneath it all, I just don't think it's all that good. Steve Davis, what's your closing time, Chatter? What's occupying your mind at the moment? It's me told. 
Yeah. <laughs> Next time you want to put forward an opinion, you're going to get shot down in flames on these podcasts. <laughs> these people, they've got control. John, they've got control over our microphones. They can shut us up at a moment. Yeah, notice. we're the elite, you know. Yeah, there you go. What, what's occupying your mind, Steve? What's been the thing that's been... Well, well, as this, this uh, podcast has unfolded, what's <laughs> occupied my mind maybe is that I've realised... That and, and don't take this the wrong way, John. I have no time for the Beatles. <laughs> and that's not to say I don't. Good man. And that's not to say that I don't like the Beatles and I and I love their psychedelic period. And we playing tomorrow now of Never Knows. It's an absolute banger on the dance floor. It really gets kicks off. Mm. But it, for me, it's about how much time do you spend listening to old music as opposed to listening to new music. And I feel that for me. I'm still trying to find new artists out there all the time. How much old stuff can I listen to compared to what's out there that I don't know exists yet? So for some people, they live in the past and they only listen to old music. And that for me is sad. I hope that I'm listening to 95% new artists that I've never heard before. And that's why I I have no time for the Beatles. And that's not saying you think the Beatles are rubbish. You're saying you literally don't have time for them because time is scarce. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a fair point. Sean, how about you? There's a trio of musicians called Noisy. They're from Worthing. They had all their gear stolen, £25,000 worth, and they spotted it on eBay. But instead of doing things like getting it, getting the police to do it or doing something safely, they went round to the house. They went round to the house of the guy who's got it and then kind of bought one of the things and then said, actually, it's ours and we've got pictures. They'd actually collected receipts of the guitars and the amps and the basses. They showed the guy the receipts and they they came to uh, some agreement, but they still did give £2,000 back. They have strangely got a record out. (laughs) And I did wonder. I did wonder. But bless Noisy and their receipts. And so uh, if if anyone's listening, could you nick all of Coldplay's um, (laughs) uh, gear and could they not get it back? Cruel, no, oh, I know. I'm so <laughs> cynical. It's because he said Chris I was Martin cynical. He comes your house with receipts. <laughs> he, I bet oh, he keeps his receipts. Yeah, He's he kind of would do, wouldn't he? He works. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a, in a folder. I, don't think I want him around the house. Mm. Anyway, Andrew, what is your closing time chatter? The fact that uh, today, Saturday, the twenty third of October, when the podcast comes out, oh, is yeah. the twentieth birthday of the iPod. Well, hey, we've oh. still got ours, haven't we? I listened twenty to mine. years of the iPod. Yeah, yeah, I've still got one. It still mm. just about works. Mm. You know, I remember when the iPod first came out. A man from Apple came round to the offices of uh, Q Magazine, where really? I was working at the time, to show us the iPod. Wow. And every male in the building behaved with the iPod the way that females in the building behaved when people brought their new baby round. All the men were like, Cooing. oh, look at it, isn't it cute? Oh, what did my the gosh. women do? But the women were just like, oh, what's that? Oh, did they? Is You're making a, generalisations now? It, it's what happened, Sean. Yeah. Oh, not I see. my judgment, my, my <laughs> observation. Every man in the building went mad for it. Well, I still coo at mine. It is pink, You coo though. at your iPod. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> So yeah, it's, it's, it's twenty years it has been off. and gone. Yeah. Yes, and which gives, of course, its name to podcasts. And podcasts will still be called podcasts when iPods are long forgotten. Why did they phase it out? The iPod Classic. Yeah, Why not just idea, carry on it? selling them? Apple likes to dictate and tell you what you're going to do, mm-hmm. and what it tells you is you're going to listen only on your phone, or you're yeah. only going to stream. They'll get rid of. They'll, they'll remove the ability to play music files pretty soon, and they'll make you stream it all on Spotify. And then Steve will go to war with Apple as well as with. I tell you what, I really miss as well, and uh, notwithstanding Steve's warnings against <laughs> nostalgia, cover flow. What cover? <laughs> cover flow, <laughs> great. Cover flow, yeah. yeah, yeah. Bring it back. And against some engineer in Northern California, you said, "Well, you're not having that anymore." Also, the greatest quote ever about the iPod was Paul Weller in Word magazine. 
You said it what was like, it's like a mini fridge with no fucking beers in it. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> and, and on that bombshell. That's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much to Mr. Steve Davis. Woo! Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. It's wonderful. It's been a pr- privilege and a delight. I hope you've been relieved not to talk about snooker. And to John Harris, we are also honoured to have you here today. That's, I think you're the best podcast I've ever been on. Oh, <laughs> from me, Andrew, producers Alex Reese and Yelena Sofronievich, thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Sean Pattenden. The assistant producer was Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>